And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Peter Lilbeck, president of Westminster Theological Seminary. Dr. Lilbeck, it's, a, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Thank you so much, Dan. It's a true privilege to share our thoughts with all your listeners. You are the president there at Westminster. Before we get into uh, talking about some of your books, very interested in learning a little bit about Westminster Theological Seminary. Perhaps there's a potential student out there listening today who has been thinking about going to seminary, and I'd love to learn a little bit about Westminster. Great. Well, Westminster is getting ready to celebrate its 90th anniversary. We grew out of uh, Princeton Seminary under the leadership of uh, uh, five or six professors that were there at that time to help start a seminary that was committed to what we call the old Princeton, the historic high view of Scripture and the theology of the Westminster Confession of Faith. J. Gressa Matron was our founding leader, and we continue to be grateful for his classic book called Christianity and Liberalism. Still in print after all these years, and when people read it today, they said, how in the world did this guy write about my church? And said, well, the issues he's addressing are timeless. Yes. Uh, how faith is challenged by the unbelief of culture and how it changes the shape and teaching of the church. Uh, we have uh, about 650 students who are on our on-campus programs. They're all masters up to doctoral level. Uh, we've just started uh, an online program. Now we can get a master's of counseling online. We're getting uh, exploration about other uh, versions of uh, online programs. If you come to our website, just uh, look up Westminster Theological Seminary Philadelphia. You'll find it easily online. And we have a faculty page that will give you all sorts of courses and content that will introduce you to our really, we call them a world-class faculty, just really fabulous scholars who are committed to uh, Reformed theology, a, a high view of Scripture, and are truly experts in their sphere of knowledge and uh, academic pursuit. So the number of them have written very well-received books on, on their field. So just come online, and uh, we'd love to have you come and visit. If you ever want to do a on-campus visit as a prospective student, just contact the seminary, and we have regular prospective student days. And uh, we find that students, when they come here and they learn more about our history and what we're doing, many will say, man, this is where I want to go to study. So it's a great to invite anyone who wants to know more about just to contact us. There's a great info page to, on our website that will just tell you more. And uh, we're very, very grateful for anyone who's interested. Mm, well, that sounds very good. What if someone is uh, not going into the Christian ministry as a pastor? Um, are they able to come there and still take courses? Yes, if they qualify for acceptance. Uh, we have a Master of Arts of Religion, which is a non-pastoral track program. It's designed to give you a really rich biblical knowledge uh, with serious theological uh, training, learning some of the language gifts that are part of that, and that will help you in any field you pursue. We regularly have had students who come here that go from that program into business, who go into law, who go into medicine, who go into a mission field, uh, education, or just start continuing education because they're really serious about their faith. So we uh, certainly, our primary flagship degree is the Master of Divinity. We are thrilled to be training uh, uh, men for ministry from all sorts of denominations. I think we say something like 100 different denominations have been represented by our students through the years, and uh, they have gone to 
teach in 50 to 60 different countries through the year. So we have people serving the Lord all around the globe. And they're everyone who's interested in a serious theological program, uh, Westminster could potentially be a great place for them to come. Now, because we are a graduate school, we require uh, the undergraduate degree uh, from an accredited school, or sometimes we make exceptions for really promising students where they don't even have to come from an accredited school. But we do require that undergraduate degree because of the level of learning, the ability to engage material, you have to have some good, solid grasp of the English language and of the broader tradition of knowledge. So I'm here to train men and women for gospel leadership and ministry, which means that we just don't want to do knowledge per se, but we want to do biblical knowledge and help to create a heart and a life that's desirous of obedience to the Lord, following those great principles of the gospel and scripture. So we have chapel program, we have regular prayer meetings, we have mentored uh, ministry requirements. Uh, we encourage everyone to find their own local church community to participate when they're here. So all those things help to shape not just the intellectual part of ministry and the doctrinal component, but also the pastoral or spiritual or the, the let's say, uh, the discipleship or the formation of the person for ministry. So we're grateful for the role we have to launch people to serve the Lord in many different vocations. Now, you've written a number of books, and I don't even know which to pick from the list, but uh, there was a couple that stood out to me. But maybe you can um, share with us, of the books you've written, which ones stand out and which ones uh, perhaps have you enjoyed the most? Well, uh, let me put it this way. My most important book I guess I ever wrote was my doctoral dissertation because that proved the ability that I could actually claim to be a teacher. That's what the word doctor means, that I have some knowledge. That was called The Binding of God, Calvin's Role in the Development of Covenant Theology. That's probably my most serious scholarly work. It was written, obviously, to prove my academic abilities. It's still in print. It's uh, in print by Baker. And um, I'm grateful that it's uh, been translated, I think, into Korean as well. And it's uh, used, uh, I actually was at the University of Zurich, and there were students that were reading it and studying it. So it's, it's made a global impact, not in a massive level, but that's one I'm proud of. I had the honor to do a feshrift uh, for my uh, professor. It was called the Practical Calvinist, and it honored Dr. Claire Davis, and that was I helped bring together contributions from several scholars that had studied under him on different facets of Reformed theology. So maybe that was the one that I delighted in because it honored a teacher that I had. Uh, the one that I probably am most known for, it does touch the theological world, but obliquely, and that's my book called George Washington, Sacred Fire. It uh, was actually a number one bestseller in America. It was uh, on George Washington's faith, and uh, that has just recently had me lecturing at wonderful places like uh, West Point Military Academy. I was down in Abilene, Texas, uh, helping to launch a new children's book on Washington and his faith called Washington Providence. And that was uh, the man who wrote it said, I was inspired because I read your book and went on a tour of Philadelphia with you. So it was a thrill. And I'll be lecturing on George Washington's faith uh, this next week at uh, Colorado Christian University. And I just heard they're planning to have that on C-SPAN, so maybe some other people will get to see it. So that book has given me my notoriety. People either love or hate that book, depending <laughs> on how you perceive it. But it's 1,200 pages of defending the fact that Washington had a serious Christian faith, not that he was the best Christian who ever lived, 
or as a sinless man, but that his faith really was integral to who he was as a person, both in public and private life. And then maybe an area, a book that I've written that has most touched uh, the debate where culture often is going on is the idea of the wall of separation between church and state, uh, the idea that the First Amendment means the church should have nothing to do with the public discourse of America, as some seculars would put it. And so that book is called The Wall of Misconception. It's not a wall of separation. We need to understand what that wall is. And the subtitle says, does the separation of church and state, which all of us recognize has to exist in a free society, the church and state cannot be the same because it will legislate uh, faith and worship, and that's not going to create freedom. It will create hypocrisy. But does the separation of church and state, whatever it properly means, does that mean the separation of God and government? And what that would suggest is, can we be theists? Can we believe in God and have our worldview of believing that God is relevant, his values are true, and still get involved in the public square? And of course, the answer is absolutely. While we want the church and state to be clearly distinguishable with different responsibilities, what Abraham Kuyper will call sphere sovereignty, at the same time, we want to have the ability to say, as a theist, as one who takes my faith seriously, I have every right to be in the public square. And the reason for that is because the public square in America was actually made by Judeo-Christian believers. They were the ones that created the public discourse that granted then religious liberty to others of faith in the Christian faith and those who don't have faith, even in God itself. We all have a right to participate in the public square. And then on my long litany, I've written a lot of books. These are a few of them. Uh, Freedom's Holy Light, that is a small little uh, paperback. It's maybe about... 40 or 50 pages, and it just traces the idea of providence in the American story with all sorts of popular uh, vignettes like uh, the, the pilgrims in Providence and the, uh, the national anthem in Providence and the symbols on our coins and dollars in Providence and all sorts of ways in which the Declaration and others appeal to this doctrine of providence. So that is my po- most popular book. We actually give it away free and if your Redeemer station would like to get a copy of those, I'd be glad to send you several boxes of them to give out to your listeners if they would like them. It's just our way of, from the Providence Forum, my ministry that engages this issue of faith in the public square, uh, would be able to share some of this uh, story of early American history running through, uh, right up through Lincoln and to the modern age, showing how our leaders have often taken the doctrine of Providence very seriously, the idea that God is active in government, and his blessing is important for the success of our nation. So those are some of the things I've written. Yeah, we'd be very interested in that. Um, Yeah, this is a fascinating subject and so very timely. Our government is in such trouble because we've left God out of the equation. Um, We think that we can get along without his righteous rule in our lives. Uh, Things as simple as, thou shalt not steal. (laughs) Maybe you could talk with us a little bit more about this um, influence, uh, the need for influence. Maybe there's a young man out there today who's struggling, thinking, you know, I I, um, I feel like I'm betwixt and between. I'm kind of called by God to, to get into government, and everybody has told me it's dirty. I shouldn't have anything to do with it. Uh, how would you encourage uh, such a one? Well, all I can say is I'm really glad when I go to my mechanic, he doesn't say, boy, that's going to be a messy job. I'm not going to fix your flat tire or change your oil. He gets his hands dirty and he rescues somebody from a disaster. 
Yes. And that's what we do in ministry. We get our hands dirty and we rescue people from the pain and uh, sinful realities of life by pointing them to the gospel and the wisdom of the scriptures. Uh, it's the same thing for those who are going to public service. Yes, there's going to be maliciousness. There's going to be ugliness. There's going to be potential conflict and your hands are going to get dirty. But are you getting your hands dirty to make the world dirtier? Or are you getting your hands dirty to make the world cleaner and better and show a a more exciting way. I'd like to say, you know, in all the conflicts we're reading about in the news right now, wouldn't it be fascinating if people would step back and say, what would the world be like if we continued to teach thou shalt not kill and actually uphold it and be absolutely clear about that from kindergarten all the way through school and say that means because we love our neighbor, we don't bring weapons to school. We don't look at ways to harm them, but we actually want to preserve them and help them. And if someone is struggling, instead of ostracizing them, we find a way to come alongside and help them to find a place of hope. How might that shape a leader of violence and evil that may be in the news right now if that had been part of their story? Uh, So we have rejected the idea that there are principles of right and wrong. And the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation. Well, if you put that in its negative form, unrighteousness destroys a nation. And that's exactly what we're seeing. No longer can we safely go through an airport and go on a plane. You've got to be stripped down and searched before you can get on board. No longer are we going to be able to much longer go into a public school without having to go through a metal detector and having all sorts of tests put on us to make sure we're safe. That's the loss of moral righteousness before our very eyes. This was the greatest defense. In fact, one of our founding fathers uh, that was uh, very important. It was a man named Benjamin Rush. He was actually a founder of one of the first abolition societies to slavery in America. He was a medical doctor who signed the Declaration and who did a lot of work on mental hygiene, the idea of how do we help people that are mentally ill early in America, trying to work with the insane and the mentally harmed people in the early colonies. He wrote a long, extensive defense of why the Bible should be a key textbook in our schools. Fascinating. You're not allowed to do that today. Here was our founder arguing for that. Here's what he said. Why do we spend so much money to deal with criminals and we put such little money into advancing the message of the scriptures that actually create people that are moral, people who do what's right, people who learn to love their neighbor? If we would use that money there, we wouldn't need all the money in penology and punishment and jails, etc. Fascinating argument. And I, I like to make this observation. You can take any major city in America and go into the urban centers where there's so much heartache and difficulty, social problems everywhere. And if you go to a public school and then you go to a private school, whether it's Protestant or Catholic, and you'll find in a public school, the attrition rate is very high where students will not graduate. You go to the private school that teaches the idea of right and wrong that has uh, modest but clear standards of discipline that are reinforced. Same clientele of children coming from the same socioeconomic area, the same room. Those students not only graduate, but a high number of them go on to college to study. What is the difference? The private ones don't have state money, and yet they're producing this great result. The public ones have all the resources, and they can't do it because the problem is not money. The problem is moral. The problem is spiritual. The problem is the ability to teach right and wrong and the principles of education, of uh, honoring your community 
and being able to show a way of discipling or modeling a life that's going to improve the community, not just fight and struggle. These are realities right before us, and our country is facing more and more the truth of the proverb, righteousness exalts a nation and unrighteousness, by implication, destroys a nation and brings it low. And that's right, the crossroads where we're at today. May God help us. Oh, amen. Uh, This is um, not just does it bring great glory to God, but it's exceedingly practical. I know that you have on your heart also children. Uh, We like to call them covenant children. You authored a book, a children's book, Lessons on Liberty, a primer for young patriots. Can you tell us what that book is about? Yes, I would. Uh, Basically what it is, it's designed to be a book that would be read by parents to their children or grandparents to their grandchildren, and it's something that kids can even look at and read on their own. It basically goes through the alphabet, teaching them a principle from our country's heritage of moral character, of governance, of good order, using the historic flags of America. So it's fun. You're, you have pictures of beautiful flags. You have a moral principle. And then on the odd, other side, the page accompanying it, it has all kinds of factoids and stories that support this from, from history and other aspects of the American story. So while the kids are reading the one page, learning the words, learning the letters, looking at the flag, uh, a parent can read the other side and get all this great information and maybe just say, why did you look at this flag? Did you know? And they can actually tell a story to the children. So this goes all the way through the alphabet, uh, A to Z, all those beautiful flags uh, with these stories and principles it has a, a scriptural reference and also a quote from poor Richard's almanac. That's the great uh, tool oh, yeah. that uh, Benjamin Franklin developed in Philadelphia. So you get a little factoid that he had in his book, a little one of his famous sayings with a biblical principle. And then with a, it, and there's a, a poem that goes through. It's an acrostic poem on the alphabet, all these flags and then the facts. So it's a wonderful thing. And guess what? If you'd like a copy of those, would you tell me? And I'll send you a couple boxes of those to share with your <laughs> listeners as well. But they can be ordered uh, from the Providence form. I think they're like uh, $20 plus each. And just because Redeemer uh, Network and plain answer is, if you want two boxes of those, I'll send them to you, and you can use them for your ministry any way you want. Oh, that's wonderful. We, we would love that. We have a program uh, weeknights called The Covenant Home. And uh, that will go along with that very well. Now, uh, today we're talking with Dr. Peter Lilbeck. He is president of Westminster Theological Seminary, and he's also president of the Providence Forum, a nonprofit scholarly organization committed to preserve, defend, and advance the faith and values of America's founding and founders. And uh, this is just a, an exciting discussion today. Uh, Dr. Lilbach, um, there's many uh, families, at least in our circles here, um, who homeschool. Um, perhaps it's a little discouraging at times. It's very tiring, especially for the moms. And uh, could you encourage the homeschoolers today? Well, let us remember that the task of training children biblically is given directly to the parents first, and then by implication to others who come alongside to help them. So homeschoolers are taking very seriously their God-given mandate to train their children in the things of the Lord, to uh, bring their children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to teach them wisdom and guidance from God's Word, as well as the practical insights of just living daily life in the different disciplines. 
so it's clear that the home is the place of education. It always is, and it's always the best place. And so uh, we can have others to come alongside to help us. But if a family has the ability to do homeschooling, it is a godly and noble calling, and they are not wasting their time. Uh, there's that beautiful analogy, I often think about it, uh, when someone puts uh, a fresh sidewalk down, even a child can leave his mark in the cement, but when it hardens, it's going to take a chisel and a hammer or, a, or some kind of a pneumatic hammer to make a difference. Well, these young years are the time when uh, if raindrops can leave a mark in fresh cement, just think the imagination that a parent can put into a child's heart for good and value and creativity. So for moms and dads who are homeschooling, you are not squandering your time. You are taking the most strategic years in a human being's life to help shape them with truths and values and commitments and relationship insights that will last them the rest of their life. It is an extraordinarily important investment, and it truly is consistent with Scripture. And for those that are not homeschooling, the next step is make sure that you are looking at those to whom you're delegating this role of helping to shape the education of your children, that they are, in fact, training them in things that are true, that are moral, that are godly, and will advance them in truth. And when you're in a situation where you know that some of the teachers are actually doing the opposite of that, then part of that responsibility of moms and dads, even though you're not homeschooling, is to engage your children's learning and begin to ask the question, why did your teacher say that? How does this relate to this issue, which we understand to be true? And what do the scriptures say about it? So in all cases, whether it's homeschooling, Christian schooling, private schooling, uh, let's say public schooling, in all cases, there has to be homeschooling because the home is the center of Christian knowledge and communication. And one of the greatest ways to support that, whatever educational model anybody takes, they should make sure there's a good biblically-based church that's helping to support the family and other extended uh, family members or friends who love the Lord and want to teach those values that you know are important. It's a great line. It says, sometimes the things we learn are not so much taught as caught, which means that we learn in relationship. So helping our children to have a close bond with their parents, which homeschooling can do, a close bond with other great Christian leaders like a, a godly youth group or a great pastor or an extended family. All of these things are important. But bottom line, if you're homeschooling, do not grow weary in well-doing because in due season, you will reap the harvest. And that's what you're doing. You're investing in the next generation of your children, building your faith, your love, and your relationship with them that will impact many others. Oh, that's beautiful. Very encouraging. Today, again, we're talking with Dr. Peter Lilback, president of Westminster Theological Seminary. In the last two minutes remaining, if someone would like to uh, learn more about your school, um, again, the website, and also talk just another minute about the Masters of Counseling that is available online. Okay. Well, just type in on a Google search, Westminster Theological Seminary, Philadelphia, westminsterseminary.com. Type in providenceforum.org. These are the two organizations I serve, and there's much good material for you, for your family, or for your theological aspirations. Do find out about our Westminster Seminary bookstore. We have an extraordinary selection of great material, 
that will nurture your faith. Uh, we have Bibles that are there, but also theological books and all other sorts of excellent writing that will support your Christian perspective and worldview. Uh, in terms of studying at Westminster, uh, our online degree in counseling, it's based on the biblical counseling model that's been developed through the years at Westminster. Uh, this program uh, now has 200 students that are taking it. Uh, it is uh, online. It is a full cost program, and it has outstanding support. We have, I think, something like 19 countries represented in our program now. Typical average is about eight to nine years of ministry that are there, and they are doing the program. And we understand the satisfaction rate is up to like 4.7 to 4.8 out of five, which means it's one of the best online experiences you can get. So we're really thrilled that it's being received so well. It has a cohort program where you learn together with others in real time in different places. And uh, it is a ministry that is urging us and helping us to dream about other similar types of quality programs because this has been so well received. So we're very grateful uh, for that. So if you want to sign up for it, you might have to wait a couple of years because we have so many people already in line for it and it's been so well received. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Peter Lilback, President, Westminster Theological Seminary, also president of the Providence Forum. It's a real honor to talk with you today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dan. God bless to you and all those that are laboring with you for the thanks of God. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. Amen.